If you would, uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Uh, This is a long passage for this morning, so I'm not going to ask you to stand. It's 53 verses, and uh, we're going to try to cover the whole sweep of this, uh, most of this chapter in in one sermon. Uh, Well, we're not going to try. That's what we're going to (laughs) do. So, uh, reminds me of something Yoda said, but we won't quote Yoda yet. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. Uh, as, as you recall, this is kind of part two of three parts. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Stephen's story, this first Christian martyr, one of the deacons of the early church. Uh, and as he was receiving false accusations against himself, suffering uh, for Christ as part of his call to follow Jesus. Here now in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen's response to these accusations as he's now been brought before this religious council, the Sanhedrin, and now begins his, his defense uh, before them. Uh, so Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. Pay careful attention. This is God's word. The high priest said, are these things so? And he, Stephen, said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran from there after his father died. God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit... Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. After he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. 
Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren and the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of, a- of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look, but the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness, together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rumpha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it uh, in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? 
You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And you received the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, we pray that you would guide us by your word and your spirit, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace. Help us now, Lord, to understand these words which have been written for our encouragement, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts, that in all things we would see Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Uh, As you all know, I'm sure from watching the news over the last week, the the Queen of England died, the longest reigning monarch uh, over her territory, 70 years uh, she reigned which uh, makes her death as a major transition, obviously not just for her own nation, but for the entire world. There's been a consistency in tradition, in history, in leadership uh, that's now hard to let go. And probably if you've been watching the news or reading any of the things written about it, one of the topics that keeps coming up, at least that I've noticed, is this question of tradition, you know, how, how will things change? What will be different? Obviously, with a 70-year reign as queen, uh, there's been a, a, a good bit of consistency. People have been used to certain things, and of course, she's part of a much longer uh, dynasty of rule in that area. And so you'll hear people talking about and debating the changes that will come now that she is no longer queen. What will change? What long-standing traditions will remain And as we hear these things, I'm reminded that uh, we we tend to be a people who love tradition. We love tradition. We love the history behind things. And sometimes uh, those histories, those traditions kind of take on a life of their own. And we often forget or ignore or kind of look past the truths that underlie the history and tradition. Kind of like when you get married. And you have to begin to negotiate two family traditions coming together and you have to establish your own. And sometimes it's hard to give up old things that you did and figure out how you're going to function as a new family. Some of that that problem of holding on to tradition or valuing tradition and history and missing the, the point behind them, some of that lies at the heart of Stephen's interaction and his story in the book of Acts. The religious leaders of the day had held on so tightly to Israel's tradition, to the history of God's work among his people, that they had begun to miss the very heart of what that history, that tradition pointed them to. One writer says that the the entire purpose behind every detail of Israel's history from the law, the promise of the land, the temple, the whole sacrificial system associated with that, that the entire purpose behind every, of the, every one of those details was to point them to the coming of Jesus Christ as the promised 
Redeemer. Rather than seeing what all of those things were pointing to, they had latched on to these external things, these signs, these shadows, these pointers that were pointing to Jesus. They had latched on to them as valuable in and of themselves and missed the very thing that they were pointing them to, to Christ. They were external tokens of God's grace, but they had missed the point and had ended up rejecting the very one who fulfilled all of these tokens of grace, the one who is himself full of grace and truth. And so as Stephen has been preaching, and now this opposition has risen against him, and he's been brought before this group of religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, as he begins to give his defense, uh, his, his apology, his speech to this uh, group, he turns the tables on them, by reminding them of all of these things that they already knew, recounting to them their own history and showing them that in that history they had found a false assurance. He highlights in that history these what are often called the three pillars of popular Jewish religion, the land, the law, and the temple. And as he goes through this history and points to the land and the law and the temple and how they had misinterpreted these things, he, he reminds them, he points them to the fact, somewhat indirectly, that all of it is about Jesus, the one who is, we could say, the greater temple, the one who fulfills all of these tokens of God's grace. Let's look first at the way Stephen looks at the land, the law, and the temple as these three places where the Jews had found false sense of assurance. Let's look first at the land. Um, the land. Stephen in this speech kind of goes through a sweep of redemptive history moving from uh, Abraham all the way up to Solomon and throughout this story, this recounting of the history, he points to the promise of the land that God would give to his people. This promise of land was directly and intimately connected to the promise God made to Abraham. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, told him to go to a land that was occupied by another people, but he said, I will give this land to you and to your descendants. Even though Abraham had no children, uh, he and his wife were childless at that point, Abraham believed this promise and stepped out in faith to go to the land that God had promised him. The land, as it's connected to the promise to Abraham, had become a source of confidence for God's people in the first century here and all throughout. It had become a source of identity for them as Abraham's descendant. They had, in other words, placed all of their eggs in this basket, that they belonged to Abraham, that they were physically descended from the one to whom God had made these promises. And they found confidence in that, as if simply being related to Abraham was enough to secure their standing with God. This is a theme that shows up in, in other places in the New Testament. You probably remember uh, the fiery sermons of John the Baptist, baptizing people at the Jordan River, and the, the religious leaders of the day show up, and, and John tells them uh, that the axe is already laid at the root, that they need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and he warns them, don't rely on your physical lineage to Abraham. Don't say, we're Abraham's descendants. We're fine. John says, God could raise up children of Abraham from these rocks here at the Jordan River. 
they had placed their confidence in the, the simple fact that they were related to Abraham and that they were in the land that God had promised to Abraham. But notice in Stephen's sermon here, in his unusual speech in response to the Sanhedrin, he shows them that throughout the history of God's dealing with his people, that his presence, his favor, his grace has not been so tied to the land that it should become this source of false assurance. He points out Abraham himself. God called Abraham even before he was in the land. God was with Abraham even outside of the land. When Abraham died, he had no inheritance in the land, not even a foot of ground, Stephen says. And he points to Joseph. Joseph, rejected by his brothers, despised by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt. Joseph wasn't in the land, and yet what, what do we know about Joseph? God was with him. God showed favor to Joseph, so he rose in the ranks in Egyptian government. God was with Joseph even though he wasn't in the land. Even Moses. Moses was in the wilderness when the Lord of glory appeared to him in the bush that burned without being consumed. The angel of the Lord, uh, kind of a pre-incarnate Jesus, appearing to Moses there, not in the land, but in the wilderness. God was with his people all throughout the 40 years of their wandering the wilderness before they even came into the land. The religious leaders of Stephen's day viewed their connection to Abraham and to the land that God had promised Abraham as if it guaranteed them God's blessing, regardless of how they lived, what they believed. Or to put it another way, they had so exalted the gift of the land and their connection to Abraham as the one to whom God had made these promises, they so exalted that that they missed, diminished the one who had made those promises to them in the first place. They put their confidence, if you will, in the wrong thing. And Stephen was saying, it's not the land. It's not your connection to Abraham by, by physical descent. The land was all about something else. It was about God graciously dwelling with his people, being among them. And that comes not through connection to Abraham, not through being in a specific place. It comes through repentance and faith in the promised Messiah, the one who himself appeared to Abraham in the burning bush. So Stephen points to the land and says, this is not the source of your assurance, not the land. Not only the land, but the law as well. Of course, you know how much value uh, the Jews of this day put on the law. It, it's kind of a source of ongoing debate in the book of Acts as these Jews who've now become Christians try to grapple with how do we relate to the law of Moses? How, how do we now live as followers of Jesus and still uh, honor the, the law that God had given? And of course, this was one of the accusations that they had laid at Stephen's feet, uh, saying that Stephen had claimed that Jesus was going to come in and destroy the temple, the holy place, and also alter the customs of Moses, the laws, the traditions of Moses. Now you have to keep in mind here that when uh, Stephen refers to the law or in these places where it refers to the law of Moses, it's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about kind of the whole of what we call the Torah, all of the Ten Commandments and their implications, all of the law, the sacrifices, the ceremonies and rituals that had become part of the identity of God's people. 
And so here, Stephen points out that they had misunderstood not only the law itself, but their relationship to the law as God's people. First, Stephen points out that even in the law, the law itself speaks of Jesus' coming. Notice verse 37 in chapter 7, where Stephen quotes Moses, who said to the people, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. That's a prophecy about Jesus, one that Peter refers to in an earlier sermon, saying Jesus is the prophet who has come. The law itself speaks of the coming of the Messiah. Jesus did not come to alter the law, just tweak it a little bit, mess with it. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He is the one to whom all of the law points as our Redeemer. The law itself speaks of Jesus. Number two, not only does the law speak of Jesus, but they had a very skewed view of their own obedience to the law. They, they seem to view themselves as the law keepers, the, one who, the ones who kept the law and guarded the law. And here Stephen and Jesus are kind of rabble-rousers coming in, disrupting this law that they themselves have kept so perfectly. And yet Stephen, in this retelling of their history, is pointing out that the, the history that he tells is not a history of God being good to good people because they keep the law. It's a history of God being kind to people in spite of the fact that at every turning point, they are breaking the law, rebelling against him, rejecting his rule over their lives. Their fathers had rejected Moses in Egypt, not seeing that God had sent him to be a ruler and a judge, a deliverer over them. Even in the wilderness, they had refused to obey Moses, rather turning their hearts back to Egypt, calling upon Aaron, Moses' brother, to make a golden calf, saying, we don't know what happened to Moses. Forget about him. Just make us a God that we can worship, that we can put our trust in. They had a skewed view of their own obedience to the law and to Moses. Don't we do that as well? We, we often minimize our sin and, and maximize our righteousness. We, we look at others and we might think, those people have got it all wrong. They're the ones doing the wrong things. And when we examine our own hearts, we miss the point of the law. We think that somehow we have the ability to keep the law and we, we deceive ourselves. There's a story about a, a pastor who um, had uh, quite a high view of himself. And on one occasion, he asked his wife, said, honey, what's it like being married to me? And he was asking it in a way that he expected a positive answer. And she said, let me think about it. So some time went by, you know, of course, of several months. And he finally came back to her and he said, you know, have you, have you thought about it? What's, what's it like being married to me? And she said, yeah, I've, I've thought about it. And she said, um, I can't kill you. I won't divorce you. But our lives would be a whole lot better without you. <laughs> I mean, you laugh, but it's uncomfortable, isn't it? But we all do that. The deceitfulness of sin is deep. And none of us is immune from it. None of us is in a position where sin's deceit does not have an impact on us, where we do this very same thing, where we minimize our sin, 
And we look at the law, and we look at our lives, we look at God's requirements of us, and we say, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm doing fine. Life with me must be really good. And the reality is quite different from that. Stephen, in this sermon, again and again, is, is saying to God's people, saying to these Israelites who had rejected Jesus, saying to them, you, you think that just possessing the law is enough, or you think that you've got the law and that you have kept it, and yet the history of God's dealings with his people is one of constant, ongoing rebellion and a God of grace who shows up again and again, who will not let his people go, but calls them over and over to repentance, to faith in his promises. And and here they are, they had rejected the very one who had been sent to rescue them. They had treated the law as if it were a ladder to God that they could climb up and make their way to him and be right with him, rather than seeing it as a, uh, a mirror, even a microscope, delving down into their very hearts and exposing their sin and driving them to Jesus for salvation. It reminds me of the, uh, if I can kind of illustrate it with two related illustrations. Y'all remember, y'all probably heard some old preacher's illustration about how God uses means to save people. It's a story about a man who's on top of his house. There's a flood coming, and he's praying. He says, God, rescue me, save me. And, and the flood keeps rising, and, and somebody comes by on a boat, and they say, hop in the boat, I'll rescue you. And say, no, 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 I'm praying for God to save me. He's going to save me. And the boat goes on. Another boat comes by, same conversation, same story. Flood waters keep rising. Eventually, a helicopter comes. And, you know, the rescue worker comes down the rope of the helicopter and says, I'm here to rescue you from the flood. And he says, no, 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 no. God's going to save me. I'm praying for God to save me. The helicopter flies off. Of course, the man drowns. He goes to heaven and he's standing before God. And he says, God, why didn't you save me? And he says, well, I sent two boats in a helicopter. Why didn't you jump in and take advantage of it? But keep that illustration in mind for a second. Stephen's interaction with the Israelites is kind of like that, but a little bit different. It's like they're standing on top of the roof, undergirded by these three pillars of the land and the law and the temple. The waters are rising. Stephen and others are saying, the waters are rising. The wrath of God is coming against sin. And they look around, they say, I see no water. We've got the land and the law and the temple. We are Abraham's descendants. We have the law. We have Moses. We have the place where God has chosen to dwell among his people. We're fine, and the water keeps rising. The water keeps rising. They're standing on the roof, and more warnings come. Jesus has come. He's come to rescue you. He's come to rescue you. We're fine. There is no flood. There is no water. We have the land. We have the law. We have the temple. We're okay. And Jesus shows up, and they kill him. The one who comes to rescue, and they murder him. Stephen is driving at their hearts saying, you've got false assurance. You've put your hope in the wrong place. And when the Redeemer shows up to rescue you, you have killed him. And his death is the very means by which God has chosen to redeem you from your sin and to bring you into the ultimate blessings that the land and the law and the temple all point to. But they missed it. They missed it. They had relied on themselves rather than looking beyond these gifts to see God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. The law was never just about the law as an end in itself. Paul says in Romans 10 
The end of the law, the goal of the law, is Christ for righteousness. Not you for righteousness, but the law is meant to drive us to Jesus for our righteousness. The land, the law, and finally the temple. This was the big one. God had answered uh, David's prayer about building a house for God by saying, not you, but your son. Solomon was given this gift of, of building uh, the temple, this glorious temple, uh, for God to dwell among his people. No longer in the movable temporary uh, tabernacle, but now permanent, at least semi-permanent building there in Jerusalem. Solomon builds the temple, dedicates the temple. God in his glory fills the temple with his presence, and this becomes the place where the glory of God dwells among the people of God through the sacrifices that God provides for their sins. And rather, again, rather than seeing this as gracious promise, God will dwell among his people. God will make the way for a sinful people to dwell among a holy God, to dwell in the presence of a holy God. Rather than seeing it for what it was, they simply grabbed hold, if you will, of the stones. That these, this building... These rocks, these stones, the mere presence of them in Jerusalem is our confidence. And so when Jesus comes along and says things like, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, they miss what he's saying. They, they miss the fact that he's talking about his own body as the temple. That he's talking about his resurrection from the dead as the way in which men, are reconcil- men and women are reconciled to God and brought into his presence. Stephen points at this even in the words of Solomon, uh, or not the words of Solomon, but the words of God in Isaiah. Heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hands which made all these things? The point of the temple, you see, was not to limit God to a specific place, nor to limit the way God would deal with his people, the point of the temple was to point beyond itself to the one who would come and be himself the greater temple, Jesus. In his incarnation, and the way Luke describes Jesus' conception, the womb of the Virgin Mary, Luke describes the Holy Spirit forming and shaping the body of Jesus Uh, in this miracle of God becoming man. And he describes it in the same way that the presence of God is described, coming in the temple, the spirit overshadowing and filling. Jesus in his incarnation is the place where the presence of God dwells among a sinful people. At his baptism, again, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in the same way that the Holy Spirit filled the temple at the dedication of, of Solomon's temple years before. At his transfiguration, the veil of flesh, as it were, is pulled back, revealing the uncreated glory of God, the glory of God that dwelt in the temple. It's in Jesus. And Peter and James and John see it, and Peter says, should we build another tabernacle up here? Because this is where the glory of God is. Jesus is the place where the glory of God dwells. He is the greater temple. Even in his own 
predicting of his resurrection. He describes his body as the temple. Tear this temple down. In three days, I will raise it up again. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit on the church as the people of God and says to the church, you are the temple of God. As you are connected to Jesus, you are the place where God by his spirit dwells. And you're being made and remade after the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the temple was never just about the temple. Not meant to limit God to the specific place or just to Israel and the Jewish people, but rather pointing to Jesus, the one through whom all sacrifices are made or are, are fulfilled. He is the one whose sacrifice cleanses us from sin. He is the one through whom we have access to the throne of God's grace. He is the fulfillment of all that the temple pointed to. His sacrifice, his righteousness brings us to God. Stephen, interestingly enough, in this sermon never mentions Jesus directly, at least not his name. He refers to him as the righteous one. And in retelling this history, he's pointing out to this council, the Sanhedrin, that they have misunderstood severely the way God has been at work among his people. It's not about the land, putting your confidence and your connection to Abraham. It's not about the law and your ability to keep it. You haven't kept it. He ends his sermon there saying, you received the law, and yet you didn't keep it. It's about the law driving us to Jesus. And it's not about having this stone building, glorious as it may have been. It's about Jesus, the greater temple, the one in whom we are forgiven, the one through whom we come into the very presence of God and are accepted and welcomed by him as beloved children. But if we put our confidence in any of those things, and you can figure out what that may be for yourself, we're missing the point. We only have confidence in Jesus. As we come to the table, we're to be reminded of that confidence that we have in Christ. That Christ, by his life, has fulfilled the law in all the ways that we have failed to do so. His righteousness is for you who believe. Not only has he fulfilled righteousness, but he's given his life on the cross to fulfill the law's penalty for our sin, shedding his blood, giving his life as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for us, represented by the bread and the fruit of the vine, so that as we come, we're to be reminded our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in even the blessings that God has given us, it is in Jesus, and all else flows from our connection to Christ. Where is your confidence? Uh, is, it, is it in some sort of family relationship? My family has always been Christian. My parents trusted Jesus. I grew up going to church. If those things are all true and you don't have a connection to Jesus, then you don't have a basis for confidence before the living God. It's only in Jesus. Maybe you think, well, we live in this great land of freedom and liberty, and, and surely that must be enough to, to give me right standing with God, that I'm in this land that's somehow blessed by God, and it's not it. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom we receive all the blessings, all the promises of God are kept in him. And our call is to repent and to believe, to embrace Jesus as the fulfillment of all these things and to find our confidence in him. May the Lord do that in us and give us joy in Christ our Savior.